Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 89 of the Popecast, A History of the Papacy, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends over at Catholic Balm Co., curators, as you well know, of the finest line of beard balms, oils, lotion bars, and more. Thanks for all who've been supporting those uh, these guys over uh, the last weeks and months, especially with, with supply chain issues and all these types of things that I know they've been um, struggling with. So please continue to do that. You can check them out at catholicbalm.co and be sure to enter the code POPE, P-O-P-E, at checkout to receive 10% off your entire order. That's catholicbalm.co and the word POPE at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring the Popecast. Well, today's Pope is certainly one for the record books. Even though he was only in office a couple of short years, he's memorable for one major thing that we take completely for granted nowadays. This week on the Popecast, it's the first Pope in history to change his name. Number 56, Pope John II. Somewhere in the mid-5th century, around the time the Western Roman Empire as we know it had ended, Mercurius was born in Rome, likely in the 470s AD, the son of a man named Projectus. His mother's name and the rest of his childhood is lost to history, as is so often the case with historical figures from that era. But the first time we find Mercurius in recorded history is during his tenure as a priest at St. Clement's Basilica on the Chalian Hill in Rome, a church that actually still stands today and is located just a short 13-minute walk from both the Colosseum and the Church of San Gregorio Acelio, the former home of St. Gregory the Great and the one that was mentioned on our episode with Ambassador Edward Habsburg last summer. Fun fact. But the present church was built in the 11th century, but below it can still be seen the very basilica that Mercurius would have served in, which itself had been converted into a worship space from the home of a Roman nobleman who likely had come to believe at some point in Christianity. St. Clement's Basilica, as it turns out, has an illustrious history when it comes to papal activity, both before and after Mercurius was raised to the chair of Peter himself. It was named, for one, for St. Clement I, the fourth pope, and both Pope St. Zosimus and Pope St. Symmachus had used the site to convene councils during the 400s. Much later, this original basilica was also the site of Pope Paschal II's election in 1099, and was reportedly the last major event there before the new church was built above it. St. Clement's Basilica still also bears a number of reminders to Mercurius, both from his service there and after he became Pope. One refers to, quote, Johannes surnamed Mercurius, end quote, and an ancient ciborium, a metal vessel meant to hold the Eucharistic host, is engraved with the name Presbyter Mercurius, and lastly, as the Catholic Encyclopedia lists, quote, several of the marble slabs, which enclosed the Scola Cantorum, bear upon them in the style of the 6th century the monogram of Johannes II. Quote. Mercurius found himself thrust into the papacy just after New Year's Day in the year 533, January 2nd in fact, having succeeded Pope Boniface II after an interregnum of about two months and opting to do something entirely unusual up to that point in papal history. The newly elected pope chose a new name for himself. Noting that his name, Mercurius, was also that of a Roman god, he thought it unbecoming of a successor of St. Peter, and so, being an admirer of the saint and martyr Pope John I, who had died in prison just seven years earlier, he styled himself Pope John II, 
the first pope since Peter himself to reign under a different name than he was given at birth. Now, the milieu in which John II found himself was one of, surprise, surprise, drama, degeneracy, and civil rule by heretics. Totally the first time that had ever happened. The Catholic Encyclopedia recounts the situation in the months leading up to the Pope's election. Quote, Shameless trafficking in sacred things was indulged in. Even sacred vessels were exposed for sale. The matter was brought before the Senate and before the Arian Ostrogothic Court at Ravenna. As a result, the last decree, Senatus Consultum, which the Senate of Rome is known to have issued, and which passed under Boniface II, was directed against simony in papal elections, was confirmed by the Gothic king Athalaric. Athalaric, who was on good terms with John II, wanted his decision set in stone, literally, having it engraved in marble and positioned at the entrance to St. Peter's, noting as well that any further disputes of this nature would carry a hefty fine to be paid and given to the poor for good measure. Pope John II was also cordial with Justinian, the Eastern Roman Emperor, who had sent the new Pope many lavish gifts along with his profession of Orthodox belief. Though it was customary for the Emperor to do so, he still had a political game to play, granted, and he sent ambassadors to Rome to also lobby for the disciplining of a rogue monastic order who had begun to adopt Nestorian tendencies, remember, effectively the belief that Jesus was kind of, sort of, human and divine, which maybe kind of, sort of, were united in the same person, instead of Christ being both fully human and fully divine in a single person. Nestorius, the originator of the heresy uh, about a century or so earlier, was also the one who advocated for Mary being the, uh, being given the title of Christotokos, Christ-bearer in Greek, thinking it too audacious to call her by her true title of Theotokos, mother of God, or literally God-bearer. Now, Nestorianism was condemned a little more than 80 years earlier at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, but as is the case with heresies, they tend to stick around for a while before they fizzle out. So, at any rate, Justinian brought to John II's attention that a group of monks known as the Achemite, an order known actually as the Sleepless Monks, famous for its continuous divine liturgy 24-7, they had taken the suppression by a prior pope, Hormistus, of the statement, quote, one of the Trinity suffered in the flesh, end quote, a bit too far, and apparently they needed correction. John agreed, convened a meeting of bishops, called a synod, and decided to excommunicate the monks while confirming in writing the emperor's objections. John dealt with some other drama not long afterward as well. In one of the earliest recorded acts of the Bishop of Rome exercising jurisdictional discipline over a faraway sea, this pope deposed Bishop Contumeliosus, say that five times fast, Contumeliosus of Ries in the south of modern-day France, and ordered the Gallic bishops to confine him to a monastery to live out the rest of his days for having been a well-known serial adulterer. So, no complaints about that decision, of course. But one of John's last acts as Pope. I know, it seems like he just started. But, but it was about another heresy, and one that had been around even longer than Nestorianism. And that was Arianism, the pesky belief denying the divinity of Jesus Christ that originated with the priest Arius in the early 300s. Although Arianism has been, had been condemned at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, there were still nearly two-thirds of the world's bishops who at that time identified as Arians, so the sickness ran deep. And as you can imagine, for another couple of hundred years, uh, it, it kind of took to, to work it out of the system. So, however, by that time, there had begun to be a steady stream of bishops and priests who were repenting of their faulty belief and desired full communion with Rome 
once more. So John assembled over 200 bishops in Carthage in 535 AD to discuss what should happen in such cases. Should the clergyman be readmitted after doing proper penance, or should they be remanded to the lay state once more? Now, sadly, John II would die before being able to make the final decision, but thankfully it was seen through by St. Agapetus I, the man who would be chosen next, just five days later. Pope John II went to his eternal reward on May 8th, 535, and is buried in St. Peter's Basilica. Though he appears to have been somewhat virtuous and worked for the good of the church during his short tenure, John II isn't actually officially canonized. Don't really know why, but it's kind of a drag because only he and Boniface II before him are not saints in the 40-year eight-pope stretch. So the other six in that stretch are indeed saints. John II and Boniface II, we can hope are in heaven, but they're not canonized currently. And that's about it for the story of Pope John II, the first pope in history to change his name. I'm always simultaneously kind of bummed and excited for the shortness of these particular stories from the earlier centuries of the church. Bummed, of course, because there isn't more that's known to us, but excited because it leaves more to the imagination, I guess. Considering just from what we know of a guy like Pope John II, to think about how he, without a doubt, encountered the same sorts of struggles, temptations, joys, etc. that you and I experience on a daily basis. And then thinking about how those affected his handling of things like deposing a naughty bishop or condemning an ages-old heresy or listening well to the emperor's legitimate concern. But then, also, what kind of food did he like? What made him laugh? Who knows? Anyway, there's not really a point to that. It's just always fun to think about. But in any event, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. I realize it's a bit of a short one, but uh, kind of comes with the territory. You never know if there's there's not enough known about a pope. I guess it's just where we are. But um, we thank you, especially if you're a new listener, uh, but especially also if you're an old listener. Please, if you haven't already, leave us a rating and a review over at iTunes and Spotify. It can really help, obviously, new listeners to find the show. Plus, if you post a review or email us your thoughts, matt at thepopecast.fm. We always like to read those out on the air, uh, of course, with your permission, if it's an email, to give you thanks and a shout out. And on that note, a thank you again to all of our patrons who support the show, most especially our newest patron, Marty. Without you guys, we could do none of this. Um, We also actually just got some dandy new PopeCast mugs in. So if you need one of those in your life, complete with a lesser known Pope Francis quote on papal history, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash the PopeCast to sign up as a patron and support the show. Of course, the PopeCast will always be free to listen to so your patronage just helps us to cover the various costs that come with producing a show like this so if you'd like to join the community again and help ensure the popecast is around long into the future please visit patreon.com slash the popecast so as we head out today let us give thanks for those people who have gone before us who despite having been memorable in their own time are now known only to god that we might prepare ourselves for that reality someday too and be content with what's to come And above all, never forget, these are strange times we live in, but they are no stranger than in ages past. Until next time.